0: You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about some sponsors making today's show possible. First up, our good friends at Mubi. Algorithms do not get great storytelling, which is why an algorithm has no business choosing the films that you watch. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. Each day they introduced a new hand-picked gem and you have one month to watch it. Whether it's a timeless classic, a thought-provoking documentary, or a groundbreaking masterpiece, their lineup is always handpicked by experts. Plus, you can delve deeper into the films with exclusive interviews, video essays, and critical reviews on Movie's notebook. Try movie free for 30 days at mubi.com longform. That's mubi.com longform. Thank you, Movie, for sponsoring the show. And thanks also to The Great Courses. We're uh, fans of history, and I want to tell you about a new podcast, It's all about history. It's being launched by the Great Courses Plus. It's called Food, a Cultural Culinary History. It's a fascinating look at food as a driving factor in history from cave people to the present day. You can learn interesting food facts, try delicious historical recipes, and more. Just search for Food, colon, a Cultural Culinary History on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you are listening to this show, which starts right now. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts Aaron Lambert and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hi.
1: Hello. We're joined by some silent special guests in the studio. Yes. We'll see how silent they can Those special day. guests, it's a contest to see how long they can be silent. <laughs> don't lo- don't special lose. special guests,
0: do you have anything to say? This way.
1: <laughs> Max. Talking to the right side of the mic, man. Come on. (laughs) Who's on the show this week? Uh, Zaley Ratliff is on the show this week. No, um,
0: my guest this week is Jenna Wortham. Uh, Jenna is a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. For that, she covered tech for a long time for the New York Times. She's also the co-host of uh, Still Processing, New York Times culture podcast with Wesley Morris,
1: who's been on the show before. Full disclosure, that podcast tapes in this very studio. I think we could say, full disclosure, very good friends of the long-form podcast. Full disclosure, everyone is associated with every all the same things. <laughs> yes,
0: uh, Pineapple Street Media produces Still Processing. I have spent many, many hours in this very room with Jenna Wortham making that show. And uh, I turned the mics around, turned the tables. What did you learn? You know, I learned a lot. The One of the fun facts I learned, uh, she originally turned down her job at the New York Times. She was offered a job at the New York Times and said uh, no, because she believed herself not to be qualified. Got the job anyway.
1: If you are looking to turn the tables on all the people who are emailing you, why not email them all at once with an email newsletter from MailChimp? MailChimp makes the simplest, uh, most fun, and yet most elegant uh, email newsletter product in the game we use it i know evan you use it over there at the Atavis, no? that's correct we do use it uh, everybody's using mailchimp as far as i've heard so uh, check them out thanks to mailchimp for sponsoring the show and now here's max with jenna Wortham.
0: hi jenna hi max how are you
2: i'm really good
0: I feel like this is something of a home game for you. <laughs> yes you are sitting in your normal chair
2: i feel like i'm here more than my home so yeah
0: uh but we're doing a different thing now i get to ask you a bunch of questions that i normally don't get to ask you this is great
2: i'm sweating a little bit i have conned you into this i feel like it's been a long time coming i and know I've... i said no a few times but now i'm here
0: <laughs> now you're here and now i'm gonna ask you all those questions i feel like i know you pretty well Mm-hmm. You and I have spent a lot of time together.
2: It's been years. Yeah. It's we, been years. Well,
0: I actually went back and looked at like, I like searched my email oh, for the did. first time that we talked. Yeah. And I remember it was like 2011. That sounds right. And I emailed you because we were making an app for long form.
2: Oh my God. And I sent you this
0: pitch. It's so embarrassing. The email Is I it? Sent you. Yeah. Oh, I'll find it. It's like ass kissy and <laughs> i remember sending it. i worked on it like i've worked on that email for a long time and i remember sitting around and just being like if jenna wortham could write about this man
2: it would make <laughs> it, it would
0: solve all of our problems
2: but wait hold on quickly car wrote about you guys right Did I write about you guys, or did someone else write about you guys?
0: Carr wrote about it. I think Brian wrote something about it. Yeah, I remember that. And you guys
2: came to the party that we used to throw at South by Southwest, mm because that's my first memory of really hanging out with you was in Austin, Yeah, the amazing,
0: those parties at the San Juan, right? That's what it's called? Yeah,
2: the San Jose. The San Jose. So me, David Carr, and Brian Stelter, when we all worked together, right around then, like 2010, 11, 12, every year we would go to South by. I've been going to South by since I was at Wired, but we would- In that iteration of going to South by, we would throw a garden party and car. David Carr always stayed at the San Jose um, Hotel, which was like down 35. So you kind of had to have a car. It's out of the way. We always try to make it the coolest media party.
0: I mean, it was. It was. um, I remember him inviting me. I did a panel with him Mm -hmm. and it was amazing. I spent the whole morning with him and he was so nice and he was so nice about the app and he kept saying like, Oh, it's so beautiful. It's great. And then, <laughs> um, and then we like went out and the ballroom was like packed and everyone was there to see him of Ugh. course. And, um, right before we started, he leaned over to me and was like, um, you know, you're taking food off my plate, right? So good. With And I was just like, <laughs> Oh, um, so but yeah. Funny. And then afterwards he like gave me this bear hug and he was like, come to this party, don't tell anybody.
2: Yeah, I loved it. He was real into the party being like, I mean, he knew how to make things cool. Like he was very into it being so off the grid. Like you had to want to go to get there. You couldn't party hop. That was key. You couldn't duck in for 10 minutes. You had to come and be there. And his wife, Jill, would get all the best barbecue. I was in charge of the touches. So I would buy fresh flowers and make the bathtub into the beer garden and get the fun, cute things like party hats and streamers and then Stelter would just kind of help set up. He would be the muscle, which was really fun. <laughs> it's interesting, I've been thinking about David Carr a lot and, and the people he brought into my life in a very clearly cut way. Like ta and I are friends because of David Carr. Like that's the only real thing that brought us together. Like mm. we befriended each other when he died and then got really close right after that which was really interesting. And there are a few people in my life who were his people and then they became my people because of that. But he was never a mentor to me in the way he was for a lot of people. I get asked a lot to talk about how he shaped me as a journalist. And I'm like, he was just kind of my surrogate dad. Like him and Jill were like my parents, you know? Yeah. And then I became good friends with one of his daughters, Aaron. And so it's just interesting to me. It's like I just didn't have that like journalistic rigor with him. Like we didn't talk about work. We didn't talk about stories. We just like kicked it hardcore. Yeah, and he like, like
0: taught you how to throw a party.
2: Yeah, you know, like and and like how to be nice to people. Yeah, you know,
0: it was amazing. I mean, how many people seem to have, like, I hadn't spent that much time with him, and it had this huge. Mm-hmm. I'd held on to it so strongly, mm-hmm. and there were so so many people affected by him. Yeah,
2: I think. I mean, this is the last thing I'll say. I just, it's just interesting because it's coming up for me a lot because I think watching him work, he knew how to do the dance of. He knew how to be a public chameleon. He knew how to seem very accessible, but really only let certain people, you know, in past the rope, right? He knew how to be nice, but he knew how to be firm. He knew how to be taken seriously as a journalist, but also show up and be the guy that everybody wanted to be around. And it's he was good at that before most of us even knew we had to be good at that. And so watching him work was a real education for me because I think it's a real tough thing to as a public person i'm using quotes but as someone who is public facing in whatever capacity people feel that they have a they're entitled to your time and your attention in a way that's really hard to navigate mm-hmm. without getting really grumpy and salty and i think he was good at knowing how to balance that it's something i'm thinking a lot about how to how to do right now
0: yeah do you think you're good at that
2: <laughs> I, you know i don't know i think i'm getting better at understanding my own limitations that's what i've learned a lot about myself in the last couple of years what do you mean by that well i have a gemini moon which means i have two sides and i've come to understand those two sides to be the the one that wants to be the socialite and the one that wants to be the introvert i'm really into my home i have a it's funny because i have a living room that's not really meant for anyone but me so there's like a couch for one person there's a footrest for one person I have like a library, I have an easel, I have like my looms, I have all the stuff that just makes me feel really good. And like that's where I go when I really want to recharge. It's like I really need my Jenna cave. Like I really, really need to sit and like work with my herbs or listen to music or paint or whatever I need to do. And that's the interior part of me. But then there's a part of me that also turns that room into like, you know, I have like a low coffee table and like all these pillows and I'm like, come through and I'll just like, if I'm hosting five people, it might as well be 50. Like, I'm just like the more the merrier. And <laughs> so those are my two dueling sides. And I really understand that when I'm done public facing, I'm really done. And trying to do it when I'm not in the mood to do it does not work for me.
0: Does one feel like more you, like more authentically you?
2: No, they both, I get a kick out of both. And I think sometimes it's tough because... I don't know where our obligation ends to other people that appreciate the products we make. You know, a tweet, an idea, an Instagram, a podcast, a story. I don't know what the relationship between the people that absorb that stuff is like where it ends with me. Because that's not I don't see me as the product of my work, but people who are interfacing with the work see that as an extension of me. So it's a weird thing. But I will say that the thing that feels most to me is like when... This happened the other day when, after we did the still processing with Tanahasi, we were crossing the street and this bus driver just like punched the horn and we all turned back and he just like raised a fist. It wasn't for me or Wesley, it was for Tanahasi, but I was like, that's like perfect. That's <laughs> like exactly the perfect interaction where you're just like, what's up? You don't really have to do a whole lot of work and they're not being that intrusive. It's just a. But once I was in a bodega and I was in a real, like a real blue mood and I was buying tampons and I was buying like cleaning solution and like ice cream and just like a real gremlin moment of like, oh, all this stuff I need and like I'm going to spend $45 in this bodega and I don't even care, you know? And this guy's like, I had like two big boxes of like jumbo tampons and I'm like trying to get them down and this dude's like, I don't mean to interrupt you but... I'm a huge fan, and like as I turn, just, like all these tampons are like falling on me, and I'm like clutching the ice cream and the seltzer and the cleaning stuff, and I'm just like, okay, like I was just like, I mean, at least you're seeing it, at least you're seeing all of it. Like, I don't know what to say except like, cool, you know.
0: And then uh, like just keep walking. Yeah, you know,
2: just like I, you know, I don't know. So it's it's funny. Like I I appreciate it. Really makes the work feel worth it to know it really resonates with people. But well, I'm not used to people talking to me so much on the
0: street well that was one of the things I, I was interested in talking to you about I mean thinking about like those San Jose days when all I want in the world was for like you to write about this little app that Aaron and I had built like was that tension there for you then because you had like some ginormous number of Twitter followers and you were like so you were a tech reporter mm-hmm. you were like very much living in that world and kind of like It felt at least like living pretty publicly Mm -hmm. on social media and all that stuff. Was this divide and that tension that you're talking about, was that present for you then? Or were you not thinking about it as much?
2: Oh, no, I thought about it all the time. I mean, I always, my public presence online was always mediated by a news organization, you know, because I got on Twitter when I was an internet wired. So for me, it's never been like this private thing. So I've always associated the two. And I always have like masterminded a little bit where like I'm very aware of, how I'm presenting myself online as adjacent to whatever job I'm working. Mm -hmm. But the difference for me with regards to those days in South By is that I could leave it there. I might have like a couple of weird moments where somebody might be like, oh, I saw you on Twitter, like, is that, you know, and I would, I deliberately would choose avatars that looked cool, but not really like me. But I think now there is such a pervasiveness of media that is created socially and shared socially that it's harder to hide. And I mean, especially with the podcast, like those are our faces. Right. And I, you know, I remember when we were making the album art, to me, it, it was a very conscious choice to use our faces, because we were one of the the Times's first cultural podcasts, one of the first that they were making in-house. You guys, but I wanted people to know like what we look like. Like I, it felt really important to me that readers of the Times understand what we look like, you mm-hmm. know, and like what our skin color was, and I think that was a smart choice. But it also became, I mean, the number of people that see me now and know who I am has exponentially, I mean, it's just, it's, since, it's exploded. Since you started the podcast. Since we started the podcast. Really? I mean, there doesn't, I mean, Max, there isn't a day that goes by where someone doesn't stop me. And I don't have it as bad as some of my friends who their brand is their presence on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I've become much more protective over my personal life now. Like I'll Instagram story all day, but it's not really going to be here's where I am. Like, details. Like, it's, I'm not like checking on Foursquare anymore. You know what I mean? If that was still a thing.
0: Why do you have to do it?
2: Even be online in the first place? Yeah. I mean, I just think it's really fun. Like, I don't feel like, oh, my job will probably kill me for this, But like, I don't really, I think at one point it was really crucial to distribute your stories via Twitter, via whatever. I think the algorithms do it for us now. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, they don't need me, but I still have a lot of fun. And I love I love to look. I love to look. That's why I'm a journalist. Like I love being nosy and I love to see and I'm really interested in the culture of how we look. It's just, I don't know. I feel like an old school archaeologist, like, (laughs) you know what I mean with my like magnifying glass. Like I just really enjoy watching how we interact with each other.
0: Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for just a second and tell you about a uh, podcast. I think you should check out, particularly if you're into myths, legends, folklore, if you were into fairy tales as a kid, I think you're going to like this show. It's called Tales, and each episode combines analysis with uh, captivating campfire-style storytelling, and every story takes you through these uh, like dark twists and turns. It's really not the fairy tales you're used to. You can check out episodes on Beauty and the Beast right now. And there's new ones coming out every other Saturday. They're going to have an episode on Bluebeard, Little Red Riding Hood, uh, many, many more. Visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you are listening to this show. Just go and search for Tales. That's T-A-L-E-S. Or you can visit Parcast.com slash Tails to start listening right now. That's Parcast, P A R C com slash Tails to listen right now. Now let's get back to Jenna. i want to go back to that time that like when you were at wired maybe right around when you made the jump to the times and like you were jenna wortham tech reporter Mm -hmm. that was that was your job how does the way you're talking about this stuff in the way you sort of interact with and think about social media and the internet and tech now how does that compare to how you thought about it then
2: well, back then, I didn't really know it was something I could turn into a job, which was hilarious. So that was sort of like my eyes were really being opened. To... When, when
0: did you start at Wired? How old were you?
2: Oh, my God. Hmm. I was a real baby because so I moved to say, okay, so I, I went to the University of Virginia. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I basically flunked out, which is mortifying. I mean, not really because I'm fine, but like at the time, it was very embarrassing. You didn't graduate? I barely graduated. I barely graduated. I had a really hard time in college. I wasn't prepared for both the academic rigor of school, like the expectations of independence, and then also just a lot of the social recalibration that I had to do. I grew up in DC. I went to Charlottesville for school two hours away. Might as well have been two universes away from each other. Mm -hmm. I, I had a really hard time adapting to just the social organization of college. And so I had to get out of there as quickly as I could. And I I worked in restaurants when I was in college. That's how I paid for a lot of stuff. And so when I was done, I, I worked for a couple more months in the summer to save money and was like, well, where are restaurants in america like where i could make a lot of money (laughs) so it was like new york or san francisco and i felt like new york was really overwhelming like i knew i'd end up here but i was not ready and i had family out west and i'd spent some time out there in southern cali and was like i fucking love california i want to go back and i was just exhausted after college so i just went and basically partied for a couple years and did the restaurant life (laughs) and loved it and shout out to sauce um and were you a server I was a server and like kind of a manager. I mean, they tried to hire me as a manager, but I was sort of like resisting a little bit because I was trying to figure... You You were good at it? Oh, my God. It's Diner Dash. My brain loves it. I love to organize. I love to... There's a real exquisite calculus that you do when you approach a table, you take their order, you put it in, and then you kind of have to like, all right, I've got about eight minutes. Let me do my laps. And then, okay, eight minutes come up. This comes in. And you're watching... You know, and you have to fire their second course. Did you ever wait tables? Yeah. You know all about this, so mm-hmm. you're doing that math, and it's all about reading body language.
0: Yeah, I was um, terrible at remembering people's orders. What? I was constantly fucking up people's orders. I was a much better bartender <laughs> than I was a waiter.
2: I can see you was a good bartender. I never wrote anything down. I was known for never using. I never. I didn't. I never wore an apron. I didn't carry notepad. Didn't wear a bra either. Didn't wear good shoes, which is why I have back problems to this day.
0: (laughs) So you're hanging out, partying, waiting tables. And how do you decide to apply for an internship at Wired? How does that happen?
2: I knew that was the plan. The best thing about my time in college is I took this amazing graduate course called Grassroots Publishing. We put out like a feminist publication. And I was like, oh, I love magazines. This is what I like to do. I like writing, I like reading. I didn't really know how it could be a job. That was hard for me because my parents, most of my family works for the government. They have like real nine to fives. And so I was good at science. I was like, that's the path I have to pursue. I need to become a doctor. I need to become something sort of professional. And I had a hard time in college because the creative part of me was like really unhappy. So Mm -hmm. I was just like sabotaging myself a lot. Anyway, so I'm in San Francisco, I'm waiting tables, I'm enjoying it, looking on Craigslist. And I just start interning at every, I interned basically every magazine <laughs> that existed in San Francisco. I worked at the now defunct Girlfriends, which was a lesbian magazine. They sent me to Dinah Shore <laughs> to advertise the mag, which was really fun. I worked for San Francisco magazine. I applied to 7 by 7 and got it, but I think I'd also gotten the Wired internship at that point, so I chose Wired. I worked for, oh my gosh. There's a couple of really short leaflets that I can't remember the name of. They're super iconic that I worked for. I worked for SFS too. I did a lot of this for free. Mm-hmm.
0: And so Wired was just one of the many places. Were you excited about the like tech part of it?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was interning at San Francisco Magazine and I had this sort of sciencey background and I started helping an editor there on a story about gay men in San Francisco who were having unprotected sex. And... He was like writing it from personal anecdotal experience. And he was also doing a lot of sciencey research. And I was like, oh, this is like, I had studied anthropology and biology in college. And I was like, whoa, this is really cool. This appeals to me. And I was his like assistant on the story. And when he had finished, it was a cover. And he was like, you should go to Wired. just think about it. You like the science stuff. You're good at it. And I was like, Okay. And we had a really interesting relationship. I helped him with a travel guide for Frommers, and like he would pick me up at like ten in the morning by just like laying on the horn outside of my San Francisco apartment. <laughs> We'd go to like the Castro and drink margaritas and then like talk about the sections I owed him. San Francisco was awesome. I think about that time. I had the best
0: time <laughs> living when, there. Just like Pegasus. What time When would, would this have been? Yeah.
2: Um it would have been two thousand six to two thousand nine. And I was like early 20s. Which is
0: such a wild time for Silicon Valley too. Yeah, it was. Well, this
2: was all these things converge at the same time, pretty much.
0: All right. So you get to Wired. What's the break? How do you go from intern Jenna to being like Jenny Deluxe?
2: Oh, gosh. (sighs) That's so funny. Um, Well, I chose Jane Deluxe because there was like a scramble to figure out Twitter names. And I was just like, this sounds cool. And I think... I had one of those cell phones that had T9 and it would change something I used a lot to Deluxe. So I often would go like text, it's Deluxe, Mm -hmm. you know, and Jenna Deluxe looked dumb. So I did Jenny, even though I hate being called Jenny. So (laughs) I can't be mad at it. People call me Jenny all the time and I just have to be like, well, yeah. Um, Well, I started out as a research intern, which meant I was a fact checker and I spend a lot of time looking at how people put stories together so you know you get the tapes you get the transcripts and then you get to watch the story as it moves through rough to final and i'm a much better student of doing than listening to someone tell me how to do something so i would observe these stories get put together in reverse basically like you know i'd see the finished product and then i could go and look at the rough and like figure it out I would say fact checking really prepared me for life as a journalist because that work is the hardest work in the biz and they don't get nearly enough credit. And anyone that works in a magazine that still has a research department intact knows this. The rest of the world does not know this. Mm-hmm. But I did that for a while and then there were a lot of fact checkers that rotated in and Out of Wired um, who were on staff slash permalancers. And when I was winding down my internship, there happened to be an opening. So I was like, cool, I'll do this. And I, at that time, I was taking less hours at the restaurant and doing more time at Wired. And, you know, I would make in a week at Wired what I would make one night. And for a lot of the time, I did both. And that's a funny thing I try to talk about a lot because I worked 80-hour weeks pretty regularly. So I would be at whatever internship from 8 to, you know, 4 or 5. I'd, like, leave a little early. And I'd jump in a cab, changing in the cab across town and then suit up, go into my restaurant job and work until two and mm. then do it all over again. And I think it was really hard. It was hard because most people didn't have to do that. And I think that was like the beginning of like an inequity that I was like started to be kind of curious about that I was seeing echoed in San Francisco. But anyway, so I'm in, I'm in Wired. I'm working there full time. And I just started getting kind of breaks from editors like... I was lucky enough to work on a, I shouldn't say lucky. I've been trying not to say lucky because I feel like it's luck, but it's talent. But anyway, so I was working on a story about video game composers, so orchestras and symphonies that were starting to rework video game music as part of their programming. And I can find this exact story. I think it was Joel Stein from the LA Times. But he was too busy to work on some of the rewrites. The editor at the time, Jason Tans is like, can you help me with the story? The writer's MIA, and I'm like, oh my god, of course. And I basically rewrote and re-reported the whole dang story. And he really fought for me to get a co-buy line, and I think I got a credit that was like an additional reporting buy. And he said, like, I've told him this so many times, and it, I know it embarrasses him, but I remember he said, like, you could do this, and it really changed the game for me because I had never really been able to see that. Just hearing that. Just hearing that because I had flunked out of college. Was a cater waiter in Virginia, had all this debt, had no money to my name, didn't have family support in a way that was significant or like any of my peers. Like, I don't know how to live. Like, I don't know what I'm good at. And so to have someone who's been doing this their whole career, just be like, you could do this was a big game changer for me. I Mm -hmm. I really started taking myself seriously after that.
0: At what point did you start spending time with like Zuckerberg? I never met
2: Zuck. It's so crazy. I never met Zuckerberg. Yeah, I never met Zuckerberg.
0: In my head, like in that time, you and Zuckerberg are just hanging out all the time. That's how I've imagined like the late aughts for you in San Francisco.
2: I mean, name any other startup founder and that would be true. It's just not true for Zuckerberg um, because Facebook was a big deal. And you have to remember too, like I was coming up, especially at a place like Wired under Stephen Levy, Fred Vogelstein, Josh Berman, Josh Davis. I mean, they had plenty of people to write about all these companies, they didn't need lol me. So I wasn't in those rooms at the time, but I did start doing some culture reporting for Wired and I eventually transitioned over to wired.com, which at the time was a separate entity across the hall. We used to call it the Berlin hall. And I started writing for the underwire, which is a culture blog that's still up and running today. And I could do whatever I wanted. I was the lead blogger. I was there at the same time as um, Alexis Madrigal, Angela Watercutter, Aaron Biba, Lisa Kadayama, a lot of people that we read now. And we would all get there at like 7 a.m. or whatever ungodly Hour and just blog. It was like a cute West Coast gawker, but not as cool, I guess. But <laughs> some of the pieces I was writing started getting picked up specifically by Peter Kafka over at, at the time he was at All Things D. Now he's at Recode. And... At the time, I wasn't really that aware of like mainstream New York tech writing, even though I read a lot of it. Like I read, seen it a lot and stuff. But people read his digest. You know, mm-hmm. they read him to see what he was reading. And he would often link to my stuff. And so, you know, at the time I was writing about like iPhone hacking, which, you know, now we know is like people making apps for the iPhone. I was writing a lot about how... TV producers and showrunners were paying attention to fan forums, which now we see that happening much faster on Twitter. But, like, it was a really big deal in, like, 08 when you know, people were mad about a trauma scene on Dollhouse or whatever Mm -hmm. the hell Joss Whedon show. And like the producers would like address it and deal with it. And then I was writing a lot about like Rosario Dawson was starring in like a sci-fi web series, you know? And like I wrote about all that stuff because it was interesting to me. And I was writing a lot about Twitter too because I was using Twitter. I thought it was really cool. Our offices were right next to Twitter. And I just felt like something new was happening. And I felt like watching people's relationship change to each other by way of their phones was like worth looking at even though i didn't really know like what that was called yet or even that it was like a business yeah. story I was thinking about it more from like an anthropological lens
0: were you optimistic about like tech then
2: back then i was super excited about the possibilities i felt like i didn't know what it was or what it was going to be but i just remember thinking it was a really big deal
0: I mean, my recollection, because I was reading your stuff then too, and my recollection of it was like, you were were about it. Mm -hmm. Like, you were optimistic. And, you know, now I feel like I've had enough conversations with you in the last couple years about this stuff that I wouldn't say you seem as optimistic now.
2: Yeah, I think what I liked about the job back then was the trend spotting aspect of it. I Mm -hmm. think I liked figuring out what trends were emerging and then reporting on those trends. Like, I think that was the Diner Dash part of it to me. It was like figuring out how to do this thing well. Mm -hmm. And so some of the pieces I had been writing for Wired got noticed by Damon Darlin, who was then the deputy tech editor for the New York Times. And that led to a series of conversations that wound up getting me hired. And when I got to the Times, they were like, it's cute that you want to write about, like, how conversations on Twitter are changing language but we need you to write about business and so it was like a real rude awakening but it was really good. Did you know good. that
0: that was what the job was going to be?
2: <laughs> no it was an old okie doke. Really? But they do that that's okay that's <laughs> alright sorry uh, but it was good because knowing how money moves influences how I think about this stuff now it's not just enough to be like you can talk to anyone in the world and like look at everyone like everything's a portal on Instagram it's like no but like how are people making money off of each other and also like how is that echoed in history?
0: What was it like for you to move across the country you move for that times job right Mm -hmm. move across the country start working at the new york times yeah walk in get told like you're gonna have to figure out the business side of this this isn't just about uh doing your like fan form trend spotting (laughs) yeah how how did that feel
2: it was fucking terrifying (laughs) it was terrifying i mean you know i mean i've i've said this before but you know i like turn the job down really yeah, I I had been talking to The Times for like five months, which basically was just involved. And I was like 24. I was like a baby. You know, they would take me to lunch and we'd hang out and talk about the internet and like thoroughly nerd out. And then they would say like, take a look at this story by Brian Stelter and let us know if you think like, what would you do with this but about tech? Like send us like four ideas. And so I'd be like, oh my God, it's like freaking out. I'm still like waitressing, you know, like working at Wired. You know, so it was just like this. I also didn't know I was really being groomed for a job I was mm-hmm. just like oh who knows what this will be but th- at that same time though, I was also starting my other freelance career so at the time I'd interviewed Solange Knowles for Bus Magazine which was a cover and I interviewed Diablo Cody or whatever she won the Oscar for Juno about her next movie so I kind of was getting confidence like I kind of was like I'm good at not that's, just just a bit of
0: heady time
2: It was really fun. It was really fun too. And I was like really cute. And I was like coming into myself. Like I felt really good about myself. Like I was living outside of Virginia. I was like, California is such a weird freewheeling place in general. And like San Francisco at that time was still freaky. was still fun. Like I was going to Burning Man. Like I just was really feeling myself. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Sounds fun as shit.
2: It was fun as shit. (laughs) But I have a lot of anxiety. Like I have chronic anxiety. So I know know that to be true. (laughs) It was also really scary. I think what really worried me, I don't know, I was okay with failing, but I was not okay with being told that I was a failure. Like I was okay with taking the job and being like, you know what, it might not work out. Like maybe this won't work. Who knows? I know how to waitress. I know how to land on my feet. I've done it my whole life. What I don't want to happen is for these people to say you didn't cut it. That these, was like, These people
0: being like the times people? Yeah.
2: That was like the thing for me. It was, like, really tough to reconcile. Like, I could do this. Like, I'm not afraid to go there. But what I'm afraid of is someone saying, like, we looked at you and decided you didn't pass muster. You know, like, that was a real fear for me.
0: And so you turned down the job when they said you pass muster?
2: Yeah. Well, now I've been therapized enough to know now that that's just, like, trying to anticipate, you know, a fear of rejection before it even happens. Just self-sabotaging. But, you know, they... Because when I was interviewing with them, I didn't know the depth or the gravity of the type of job they wanted to hire me for. I thought maybe I'd freelance for them. I thought maybe I would do a couple pieces and then we would get the ball rolling. And so when they said, you know, I've got this opening for a business reporter, I was like, you know, I didn't go to J School, guys. Like, I didn't. Do you need to see my transcript? Because it's really bad. Like, I just was kind of like, I don't think I just don't think I qualify. You know, I don't think that I can do this. And I also think I was a little you know, I knew that would mark the end of whatever pre-adulting period I was having. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Like I knew that was marking the end of it. And I was a little sad to let go of it (laughs) because I was really enjoying.
0: Yeah, you are feeling yourself.
2: (laughs) But you have to remember too, this was 2008. Obama wins, I get this job. It's like, yeah, it's a new damn day, girl. So I said, so basically what happened is I wrote them back and was like, I don't think I can do this. And they called me and they were like, we got your email we read it now delete it and send us another email that says I'll take the job. And I was like, okay. Wow. So it's funny. It's like, it's interesting. Cause like I really, there were a lot of women who helped me along for sure. Like Laura Moreland is one person who got me doing culture pieces at Wired that got me into the underwear job, which, you know, but it's really like all these men who really like non-creepily were just like You're good. We believe in you. And I don't know. Like, I really think about them all the time because I don't know that there's a culture of that. It felt very Mm. abnormal to me, even at the time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've never heard a story like that before.
2: Mm -hmm. And even when I got to the Times, you know, I was working with all these heavyweights like Brad Stone, Ashley Vance, like Miguel Health. And they all helped me. They all would be like sharing documents with me. You know, I remember I would be so freaked out because I'd have to do like Apple earnings report and Brad Sten would just be like, it's plug and play. Like, here's my old draft. Just like delete the numbers and put the new ones in. Like, you got it. You know what I mean? And I would be like, what do you mean? And he'd be like, you got this. Like, they would just really... I mean, and that is not normal. Like, that's...
0: Why do you think they did that?
2: I don't know. They're good people. They liked me. Who knows? Who knows?
0: I mean, do you think it was something about you that made these guys who are all like very nice guys but also in a pretty competitive environment, be nice. Do you think there's something about you?
2: Well, I mean, I, my shadow self is like, no, I'm not special, but I also think that there is something about the culture of the times that does, for the most part, with rare exception, I know this is not everyone's experience, but there is something endemic to the times that does not want to see people sink that there is a desire to help other people float if you can and Mm. that sharing resources is not, you know, I mean, I remember working with Steve Lohr who is, you know, was writing about Tetris when I was born. You know I mean? He's been writing longer than I've been alive, you know? And he's someone who never, ever treated me as if I were anything other than like his is highly esteemed colleague. And you know, that really shaped me too. It's like Mm. how I want to be in a workplace. So I think there was something very particular about our tech pod at that period of time that was nourishing, cocooning, supportive. I mean, all the things. Which isn't to say, you know, it was all roses. Like we worked so much. Like we worked a lot. I mean, all the time. That was basically my life for the next several years. But I wasn't ever afraid to admit what I didn't know. And I think... When I came to the New York Times, I really understood that if I wanted to succeed and I didn't know what that meant when I got to the Times whatsoever, like I didn't know what success would there would even mean there. So I knew that in order to just try to figure that out, I had to set all sense of ego aside to learn the job. So I had to just ask for help, admit what I didn't know, admit when I didn't know what terms meant, admit when I didn't know how to pronounce certain words. Like I had to just really... And maybe that was part of it, too. But I just had no self-consciousness about, like, I am a green little sprout. (laughs) Please water me and, like, show me where the light source is because I don't know anything. I think it worked for me because I just would rather do it right and (laughs) get the job done versus, like, hide that I don't know what I'm talking about.
0: Right. You basically, like, you were not doing fake it till you make it.
2: I was faking it, but I was also, like, willing to let you know I was faking it so we could just all make it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when did you start to feel that classic, like, uh, Jenna Wortham confidence? Like, when when did that what start the to Jenna change? Worth-
2: the classic Jenna Wortham confidence? You're a
0: confident person. What? Come on.
2: T- I, I mean, I'd like to hear what you mean by that.
0: Oh. Yeah, you, in my experience, you know what you think.
2: Hmm.
0: And you do not... Uh, you do not struggle to express it.
2: Oh, that's cool. Like
0: That's good. You have a read on a situation or a read on a group of people or a read on a room and you are able to uh, put it into words, which I think is a a sign of confidence. It's a sign of like knowing who you are.
2: You know, it's so funny because I have always felt like with regards to my job, and I think it's because this is the only job I've ever had. Somebody asked me for my resume the other day for like a, a speaking thing we're doing and I was like, dog, I don't have one. Like I don't, i mean i don't have one they were like do you have a linkedin and i was like i've had the same job for almost 10 years like i don't not the same job but it's like i don't i i don't know what that looks like i was like do resumes work the same way like has there been new resume technology (laughs) or like information that goes on them i don't know like i actually don't know but i think when it comes to my career because i have tried so many different things at the times like i sat in on early product iterations for nyt now and did like VR and did like our daily news show that we had in Bizday for a while. I've had so many different jobs within the times itself and even now this podcasting job. It's that gives me a lot of confidence in my career. Mm-hmm. Like I've always I feel very emboldened to like express ideas, try new things. I guess I've had enough I wouldn't say I'm successful in the way that I want to be yet, but I I've had enough minor successes that I feel I can trust my instincts when it comes to work. Everything else I'm still figuring out though. So like I'm not as confident And like my purpose in life is not as, as a thing I'm secure about.
0: But a big part of what I wanted to talk to you about, and what I'm curious about, is what you were just mentioning. Kind of like I feel like you just you've lived like many different professional lives, covering different things, Mm -hmm. covering them in different ways, and I don't really understand how you've made those transitions. Like Mm -hmm. you said at the beginning of this, um, use the phrase like public chameleon I mm-hmm. think you're saying that car was a great public chameleon mm-hmm. and it feels to me like you've sort of been a, a bit of like a professional chameleon mm-hmm. perhaps mm-hmm. like you've been able to adjust with it and I wonder how you do that because there was a time when your job as I understood it and like I read you in the paper all the time mm-hmm. was to basically explain what was going on on the internet mm-hmm. to people who didn't get it. <laughs> It that was a-, was a
2: job that I advocated for, though. I gave myself that job at the time. So I was hired in '09, and my job was telecoms. I was a telecom reporter, which meant I wrote about Verizon, I wrote about AT&T, and I wrote about Sprint. That is about as sexy as it sounds. <laughs> and it was really a culture shock. I had to wake up sometimes at like 8 a.m. and like come and listen to earnings reports. And like I had to go to breakfast with like the CEO of AT&T, who would be like you. And I'd be like, yes, me, I know. Like I just it was just like a constant death by like bare. You know what I mean? Just like I'm never what anybody expects. And like and in a way it was great because I was like, well, I'm never what anybody expects. So whatever. And, you it's know, it's so wild
0: to me that you were like having this moment of having to figure this shit out on that stage.
2: Well, I had a good editor. Like I would, you know, I worked with this editor, Damon Darlin, who's just, I mean, he's no longer at the Times, but he's a real reporter whisperer. And some editors are good with copy. Some editors are good at managing up. Some are good at managing down. Some do all variations of that. And I, I feel like one of Damon's talents was he really he was like a beta blocker like he knew how to calm me down mm-hmm. you can do it here's what you go in and say just you know roll in look like you own the joint you got this like he really gave me a lot of pep talks all the time like i was always checking in like am i fucking up you know because i don't know like i don't know what i'm doing here the one piece of advice he, he would always be like you're great you're gonna do, do you're gonna do good but the one piece of advice he gave me at the very beginning that i still haven't quite figured out although i think i'm starting to but he was like protect your reputation at all costs. And I didn't know what he meant at the time, and I'm still thinking about it. It's like, protect your reputation at all costs. And I, I'm wow. still like, what does that even mean to you? What <laughs> does that a, mean to you? A, I don't know.
0: That's a super intense thing to say to say to like a 25-year-old reporter yeah. starting at the New York Times.
2: Like a throwaway line at the end of like a two-hour lunch before I left San Francisco to come to New York. And I was like, holy shit. But I, I also intuitively knew what he meant. You yeah, know what I mean? Sure. Like, I was just like, okay.
0: Still intense, though.
2: It was, I mean, I'm- That's a wild thing to like, say to somebody. I need to put it on a pillow so we can,
0: <laughs> So yeah, you had this job for a while. So you, I guess, navigated yeah, it so for the, yourself.
2: Yeah, so I'm at the time, I'm covering AT&T, and I'm doing earnings reports, and I'm looking for telecom stories, and, you know, at the time, if you think about what was going on with the iPhone and smartphones back then in general, we were all getting them, and- the phone companies didn't know what to do the dynamics of what we were willing to pay for were changing like who had access to these phones was changing how pay as you go phone programs were changing so i was really interested in that those shifts because you know again i was like looking at my own life and figuring out is this a story and then now it's other layer how is that a business story and mm-hmm. i was seeing a lot of people i know have to do like as you go phones and so i was like this is telling a very interesting story about one of the most fundamental like utilities of American life which is communication like it was mandatory at some point to have a phone number a mobile phone number basically if you wanted to have a job and what does it mean that some people can't afford this thing that's the real trendy thing and then on the other side of it it's like I remember I was writing stories about like we you know and people would trick out their phones and we don't do it as much anymore but people would go in and they'd get someone to put a clear back on their phone or they'd get you know I just wrote about that stuff like chop shops and like that was really fun and so I think that was a way in which I started to be able to differentiate myself from the pack a little bit. And I don't know if this is around the time my job changed, whether it was this exact moment or a little bit before or after, but this story I always think about, which was like the pivotal moment for me, which is we were having our weekly tech meeting and I was on Facebook late to the meeting and stalling cause we had to go and like go around the table. and like, what are you interested in? I never, it was like the most stressful meeting every week for me, like, I don't know. And I was on Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg post an update and it's like we've just bought instagram for a billion dollars and i was like oh my god and so i run i'm like guys facebook just bought instagram for a billion dollars you're like screaming and they're like start the blog post And i'm like on it and like writing and we had a real tight-knit team and uh, my editor david gallagher who i got really close with too and also stepped in as this like you know sort of pseudo parental editor figure like really protecting me and encouraging me and he's like i think this is like front page this is a big deal like i think we should pitch this to the a1 meeting which is the meeting the daily meeting the new york times has to figure out what's going on on the front page and he's like you're gonna have to explain what instagram is like this is a different time like people did not have iphones in the newsroom they didn't know what it was but it went on the front page and i made the lead a reference to rihanna a rihanna song which was really funny a lot of people got it on twitter and it was and that was like part of two i feel like whatever personal brand I was building, which is not something I was doing for kicks. I just I did it for me and I thought it was funny, but then people noticed online and were like, Who's this weird, sparky kid at the times who's right. using a Rihanna lyric in an A1 story as her leave? <laughs> you know, but anyway, so after that story hit, I went to my editor, our our deputy tech editor Damon Darlin and was like this is kind of what I think I'm good at. And I wrote a memo and he was like and I was like, I want to write about internet startups. I wanna write about this changing culture in New York and San Francisco, and I want this to be my full-time job. And he was like, okay. Pretty much.
0: And then that was your job for
2: That was my job. Like yeah.
0: four years. Yeah. Three or four years. Yeah. I feel like you were like a you were like a queen maker.
2: No. A little bit. No, that makes me nauseous. Really? If so. Well, because these, you know, it's like Little Shop of Horrors now. Like, feed me, Seymour. Like, I fed all the wrong things my blood, I guess. I don't know.
0: Help me understand what you're talking about, because this is actually something I'm interested in. You were writing for like three or four years. I feel like, tell me if this is off. On some level, you were kind of like on the like, what is cool beat. Yeah, maybe. And what made your blood curl about? Like, that's what you were (laughs) writing about, right? Like, you were writing about? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. But I think there was kind of a like a breathlessness about writing about Snapchat and wanting to be the first person to write about Snapchat and like understand why it was important to us and why we needed new ways to speak and to interact without understanding the full implications of, and I'm not picking on Snapchat, I mean just any young service like you know even like a task rabbit and not understanding like the human cost of like labor dynamics below Mm -hmm. that or like understanding how something like uber might terraform a city you know it's like i think there was a little bit of a lag for me in thinking about i want to be the first to understand what the new cool tech thing is and have the scoop on deals and have the scoop on developments and whatever and then Also knowing there was this other layer of things I couldn't quite access or write about because it was just a business story. And we weren't at least my thinking wasn't really evolved enough yet to understand how this was kind of a new type of imperialism. Like Mm -hmm. it took me a long time to get to that point. And I think that's what I look back on and kind of makes my I feel like a little curtly about it because I wasn't you know, I wasn't at a point yet where I was thinking on that scale. Or Mm -hmm. I mean, my editors kind of were, you know, they were encouraging me to like, think beyond just this is the cool new thing. But I wasn't interrogating it as much as I am now. Mm -hmm. Like deeply, deeply interrogating like, what does it mean that algorithms have a gaze? You know, we talk about the male gaze, we talk about the white gaze, there's an algorithmic gaze too. And like, Mm -hmm. what is that doing? It scares me to think about the role that some of us might've had and like not thinking that through earlier.
0: Do you think that that was just like endemic to tech journalism in that time?
2: I don't think so, I think a lot, I mean, I'm thinking about like Robin Sloan in particular, who is a pal and a, and a real smart internet guy and an author and who definitely would, you know, Clive Thompson, even Caroline McCarthy at uh, CNET, like a lot of smart people were writing about what it meant to put so much power and control in the hands of these companies. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think it was endemic to tech writing, but it's not necessarily what was the priority of the business section at the time because it right. wasn't yet clear. I think it was A, happening so fast, and B, it wasn't really yet clear how the profit model was going to change. But I mean, now it's like, it's great because I look at the paper and there's so many different ways people are writing about technology all the time. But back then, it was not as widespread.
0: Mm-hmm. That sounds right to me. I mean, it also feels like, I assume that part of the reason that you are no longer doing that is because a bunch of other people are doing that.
2: That's part of it. But I think also I was starting to pick up on where I am now, which is, you know, I would talk to ex-startup and be like, I don't know that I'm getting the full story or like I don't, you know, I, I remember, you know, trying to write a story about how hard it was for non-white people to raise money in Silicon Valley being like something in the milk's not clean. Mm-hmm. That's a Michael K of D-listed saying, which I always use and he deserves credit. But, you know, I remember like really being like something is up and I don't know what it is and I have suspicions. I can't prove any of them and I need to take a step back because I don't feel good continuing to give these people press basically, right? Like I don't want to write about this thing and not these other things. So, I mean, you mentioned before you've, I have pivoted my career inside the times a few times. I mean, I just would ask for different jobs. And I I feel like I was enough of a rare species that people were willing to to listen when I asked. I don't know if it's like that now and I I feel like an exception not the rule, but I definitely would make a try to make a really hard case for myself to do other things. And sometimes I would just get asked to do other things and I would say yes. That's a big part of
0: it too. How do you make that case? For like pragmatically. <laughs> If I'm if I'm a young person inside mm-hmm. a large organization, like
2: I do counsel a lot of young people in big organizations all the time on this kind of thing.
0: How do you do that?
2: Well, first, you have to know or believe or tell yourself that no one can do what you can do. I mean, that's the only thing that keeps me sane in this media landscape, which is always changing. And there are so many things amazing people. I mean, I still have those moments when I read something that someone else has written and I'm like, oh my God, everyone's so much better than me. You know what I mean? Like there's that feeling all the time of just, I mean, it's good though because it makes me always want to grow and do better and keep writing, get better and get smarter and be more well-read. But I think it's really understanding what you do that no one else does. And again, it's also just knowing deep down that like I'll always be okay. And I would rather try than not try. And I don't come from a super fancy background. And, you know, my mom raised me, my sister and my sister's kid on a government salary that I surpassed at like 24 and or maybe like 27. Let's be real. But like, I just remember how I grew up and I'm like, I can always do that. Like I can always like I don't need much to be OK. Like or I, I don't know. So I. I feel like for me like I know what I need to be happy which is to feel like I'm growing to feel like I'm making work that matters both to the people that read it or encounter it but also where I work like I want to be valuable and have value for the place where I am whether it's for myself or an organization like the New York Times so I think the first step is always like what do you do that's special and like why you and then I think I would try to really I mean the nice thing about a place like the Times is that I've watched a lot of people write their own job descriptions Mm -hmm. and it is a big enough place where you can do that. You know, you can, I would usually just write a memo and be like, this is the job I want or like, this is what I want to do and here's why. And I would sort of say like, I feel like the day-to-day pace doesn't really let me to think big thoughts or Mm -hmm. sit and like really dig into something I want to investigate. And I feel like there are these tectonic shifts changing. I mean, I would really try to identify what I wanted to do and why I thought it was important. And it was hard. I mean, I would say it's been hard because a lot of it kind of goes against the grain of what's happening in the media landscape, which is like to go more long form, to be more offline. It's like, that's not really the culture we live in right now. But I also think it makes sense with, I guess I'm talking about my, my most recent shift, which is going to the magazine and doing more long form stuff. Although I have this podcast now, so I didn't really quite do that entirely, but I think There is so much happening right now that the type of job that makes sense to have is to be a person who is a sieve, you know, who is distilling stuff and drawing these bigger connections beyond Mm -hmm. it just being like, this is amazing, or this is awful, which is the instinct.
0: And then I'm going to move on uh, the next day or the next hour to something else that's amazing and awesome. And so now you feel like your job there is sort of big picture context?
2: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Trying. It's really hard. (laughs)
0: you have all these other projects like outside the times like you've written a bunch of freelance stuff that's like the tone of it is really different than Uh. anything that would appear in the times although I think that's actually starting to change a little bit in Mm -hmm. the last year or two Mm -hmm. like you've written a little bit about like self-care in the paper things that I feel like would have you would have done for like the hairpin a while ago or um, you wrote this sort of wonderful thing about uh called everybody sexts for matter <laughs> which i feel like probably maybe could run on the times now but definitely couldn't have then
2: mm-hmm. i know i had to sit down with our standards editor and like look at the images really yeah that was great
0: <laughs> that was fun what role did that does that stuff that outside work play for you like why do that
2: I mean, I've done it at different points in my career for different things. Sometimes it's a catalyst to sort of show, not tell. Like, I don't want to tell people what I can do. I just want to show you. Like, I don't want to tell you I can be a cultural critic. I want to show you, you know. So sometimes I would be pitching things internally that either wouldn't get a response or might get assigned to someone else. And I would be like, well, I want to try something new. So I would just do it. And it would function like a key. You know, it would work. It would open the door. Um, sometimes everybodys sex. I mean, I didn't want to do that for the times. I just wanted to sort of see what it would feel like to write about sexting. It was in response to something really specific, which was the all those photos getting leaked of various um, celebrity women and people talking about it online. And I was really angry about the idea that people don't take nude or shouldn't take nude photos of themselves. They don't want them leaked. It's like, how dare you? People have taken nude images of themselves since the since they were technology to do so, you know. Right. So I wanted to, I really wanted to do that as a response to that. Um, I think for me though, it's also really important to have things that belong to me. And I've come up sharpening a Timesian voice that I don't think is actually my true writing voice. More of it's coming out now because I work at the magazine and you can. there really aren't new rules there. I mean, there are rules, but there aren't really rules about how you write. You can say what you want. You know, there's no like, at the, you know, when I was a Biz Day reporter, it was like, well, this goes here and then this and then this goes here and then, you know, it's, it's not a Mad Libs, but you know, there's an order, there's a structure. And I think part of learning outside of that paradigm has been to challenge myself outside of the paradigm. And it's really fun. (laughs) It's really fun.
0: Do you think that you can keep evolving and taking these different paths at the times? Like, is it a um, blank enough canvas for you?
2: I think so. I mean, the thing that keeps me at the times and not... And the thing, too, it's like I've had so many job offers come in while I've been at the times, everything from interest in working at a VC company or, like, working on a TV show or, you know, like something I'll do sparks interest. And maybe you want to come do this full time or maybe you want to do this here. And I think I want to be at The Times because I think The Times is still one of the places where when they get it right, it really matters and it can really move the needle. And... I don't know. I can't give that up. Like, I just can't give that up. There's just too many things hanging in the balance right now. Like there are just too many things that feel way too important to be a passion project, you know? And like, I'm deeply interested in wellness. And so like my passion around that is like my herbalism classes and like the stuff I do on the side. But then actually like the idea of, This is something I'm working on. I've been working on forever, but like the idea of getting a story into the New York Times that looks at racial trauma and like PTSD as a result of like years of microaggression racism, that's a big fucking deal. So that's like harder to give up access to Mm -hmm. that potential for making that kind of change or bringing attention to that kind of thing.
0: And is that what you feel like you want to be doing going forward?
2: It's kind of what i'm doing it's what i'm doing right now i mean i'm working on a lot of you know i just had this big profile on rupaul i'm working on another one and it's like the kind of story i would want to see when i was 10. you know i feel like i'm still writing to let my 10 year old self know like it's okay to be you it's okay to be like a chubby androgynous weirdo you know what i mean like this weird black kid like it's okay there are others like you and so I still feel like I'm doing that and I'm not done doing that yet, but I do want to do all these other things too, which is why the podcast has been so fun because it really scratches all these other itches that I'm having because it's it's hard to go from being at a news organization where you can, if you have the capacity for it, if you have the stomach for it, you can write every day. Like You can get a story in most days of the week to going from getting a story in like three times a year. I mean, that's a huge change.
0: But you're liking it?
2: I really like it. <laughs> It's the job I always wanted, Max.
0: Hey, Jenna. Thank you for doing the podcast.
2: <laughs> My pleasure. It was fun.
0: It was a long time coming.
2: It was, but was it worth it?
0: It was totally worth it. It was <laughs> totally worth it. I feel like uh, if we had done it before we sat in this studio for like two years making another podcast, uh-huh. uh, it wouldn't have been as good.
2: I'm with that. I hear you.
0: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern is Angela Velez. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, and the new podcast from The Great Courses Plus. It's called Food, A Cultural Culinary History. Another podcast you should check out, Tales, T-A-L-E-S, fairy tales like you have never heard them before. And, of course, our friends at Mooby. Try movie free for 30 days at mubi.com slash longform. That's mubi.com slash longform. You will not get stuck in that uh, hellacious experience of searching endlessly for something to watch. Just go to Movie. They're handpicking great movies, thanks to them, and thanks so much to Jenna Wortham. Uh, it's been a long time coming to have her on the show. And uh, it was just a pleasure. Jenna's podcast is called Still Processing. I think you should check it out. We'll see you next week.